Uh, our scripture reading today is Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. Our scripture reader is uh, C.O. Gerlach. Please, in honor of God's word, let's stand together. Listen as I read. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, CEO. Uh, so we are continuing our series uh, in Romans chapter 8, and uh, this is uh, an eight-week series, and uh, we are walking through these 39 verses, and um, a couple weeks ago, <clears throat> got to spend the entire time uh, giving us, trying to give us a little bit of a context of where does Roman 8, Romans 8 land, uh, what's, what's been happening in this, in this letter that, that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote uh, almost 2,000 years ago? What, what has he been saying that leads us up to this, uh, this chapter, these 39 verses? And on that first Sunday, I uh, just shared a, a few thoughts from a, a, a few different scholars about the nature of Romans chapter 8. And one of those thoughts was from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said that of all the bright gems in the Bible, Romans 8 is the brightest gem. Uh, and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones spent a lot of time in the book of Romans, and he looked at Romans 8 and just said, boy, it, what, what it contains in those 39 verses, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's just such a, such a powerful collection of ideas. Uh, and then Derek Thomas uh, is a, a pastor, and he, he wrote a book uh, on Romans 8, and he titled it, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. And so over the course of these 39 verses, over the course of this single chapter, um, Paul offers us the, the, the whole picture, the, the, the whole story, how it is that the gospel impacts us, but then how is it that it brings us all the way home? And uh, I don't know how, how that sounds to you, but that sure sounds like good news uh, to me. And so over the course of these weeks, uh, we are going to be moving uh, along that story, along that trajectory uh, that, that Paul invites us into. And, and this week, as you just heard, verses 5 through 11, uh, really invite us into the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to uh, take some time to consider um, uh, the, the, how, how it is that the Spirit is at work uh, in, in us. So um, you could think of this, the three points, as our condition, um, the invitation, and then our result, uh, or, or the result. And, and so you'll, 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 see, you'll see how this unfolds, I think, in verses 5, uh, five through 11. First, our, our condition. Uh, Paul offers us a really serious contrast. Uh, in, verses, in verses 5 through 8, uh, you see, see, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
Uh, you read verse 6, you read verse 7, you read verse 8. The, 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 there is a very stark, a very direct contrast that Paul wants to confront us with. He is contrasting living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit. And Paul's point here is to show that there are two ways of going about life on this earth. But right off the bat, let me address the elephant in the room. It's what we refer to as binary thinking. Uh, binary thinking has come under a lot of criticism and a lot of scrutiny uh, in, in recent years. And a lot of that scrutiny is justified. Uh, examples, if you've never heard of binary thinking or you're not quite sure what that means, you know, binary thinking is when you say something is right and something is wrong, where you give two options and it's either or. It's right, it's wrong, it's good, it's bad. Where there are options that you have in front of you are, in a, set, in a sense, they are contrasted, they are set against each other, and you have two options. Well, binary thinking um, usually results in oversimplifying the world. It usually results in oversimplifying your neighbor, other people in your life. It's very easy to think that there are just two categories uh, this this, this uh, binary thinking has led to a lot of ignorance. Uh, it, it's actually cultivated a, a posture of a, like a, an unwillingness to seek, an unwillingness to learn, an unwillingness to be open. Um, it, it convinces us that we actually have less choices than we actually do. A lot of things in your life, you have more choices than yes or no. You have more choices than good or bad. You have more choices than right or wrong. And boy, have we ever noticed this over these last 18 months. Since March of 2020 and all the trauma that our nation has endured through COVID, through the race conversations, through the recent election, uh, we have often, I have often observed us being stuck in binary thinking in, in just coming to some sort of a conclusion that we just have two options, good or bad. Uh, I've seen this a lot in, in what I've just called bundling. And that is, if you find out that a person has a view on one specific issue, then you bundle them into this entire group uh, where they hold all of these positions. And so if you think that you should wear a mask or you think you should get vaccinated, then you lump them in with all kinds of other things that you might consider progressive or blue or democratic. And on the other hand, if you're anti-mask or anti-vaccine, then you get bundled and put into everything that is red or Republican or conservative. And it's this binary thinking where there's really two groups. There's, that's, that's all there are. And they all, they all think the same way. And so if you agree on one, on, on one point, you get put in that whole pile. And that's, that's a form of binary thinking. It is an unhelpful way to navigate the world. Binary thinking is usually just too simplistic. But this section of Romans 8 is undeniably binary. So, so what do we do with Paul's binary thinking? Well, part of the takeaway is, some things are binary. Yeah, you, you, listen, binary thinking is dangerous and it can hurt us. But some things are binary. Uh, Stanford Law had an article that said the good, the bad, and the ugly of binary thinking. That's right. 
that's right. There, there are some good things about binary thinking. Um, but not all binary thinking is, is helpful. And Paul here is bringing us to, to a place to where he wants to confront us with a binary. He wants to confront us with a situation where, um, where there really are two options. So if you're here and you say, no, no, binary thinking's you know never good. I, I don't want to hear that at all. Well, you're going to have to deal with, with Paul putting this in front of us. And if others of you here were like, I'm so glad you said binary thinking is good. Listen, the, the list is a lot shorter than you think it is, okay? So, but, but Paul is putting us, he's confronting us with it. He wants us to be faced with the reality uh, of these binary categories. And here it is. Regarding our relationship with the God of heaven, there is a consistent invitation to realize that there is, in the end, only two options. You are either spiritually alive in the spirit or you are spiritually dead. And he uses the term flesh in the flesh. Now the Bible offers a million nuanced ways in which we should consider our condition and how we should wrestle with our hearts, how we should wrestle with our standing with God, what it looks like to live out a life in the spirit. So there's tons and tons of nuance but in the end, you are either still in the flesh, which means you're controlled by the earthly, you're controlled by the temporal, you're controlled by the, those kinds of perspectives, or you are in the spirit, controlled by the spiritual, controlled by an eternal perspective. Paul gets really direct in verse 8. He actually says this, For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Boy, so he's been contrasting spirit and flesh, spirit and flesh. And then you get to verse 8, and he just says it as, as plain as can be. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why? Why can't they? Well, because those who are in the flesh have not been freed from an earthly temporal perspective that causes them to build their life in a way that is contrary to God's good design. You know, Jesus uses an illustration, I think, that helps us here uh, in Matthew chapter 7, and it's, it's, it's quite helpful. And if you're familiar with the, the gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, Jesus preaches this, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 7, he, he uses this illustration and, uh, and, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount is probably a, uh, a summary or a collection of some of the ideas that Jesus preached in this sermon. It's probably not some word-for-word -word, uh, account of the sermon. But in, in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 7, uh, this is what Jesus says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What Jesus is doing with that illustration is he is saying this, everybody is building. Everybody's building a life. Everybody's building this, this figurative house. Everybody is about that work. 
If you've been alive for one day on the earth, you're about that work. Everybody is building. What are you building on? What are you building your figurative house on? What are you building your life on? Are you building it on sand? In Paul's categories, that would be flesh. That would be the earthly. That would be the temporal. That would be the things of the here and now. Or are you building it on the rock? In Paul's terms, that would be the spirit, the things of the, the eternal perspective, the, the, the spiritual recognition of what life is about. Where are you building your house? Jesus says, if you're building on the rock, as the storms come, the house does not fall. If you're building on the sand, when the storms come, the house falls. Jesus is, is, is offering us, in a sense, uh, or Paul is offering us, uh, in a sense, another way to think about the question, on what foundation are you building your house? And, you know, interestingly, this is how Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. All the glorious things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, if you receive these words of mine, you're going to build your life on the rock. And if you don't receive these words of mine, then you're building on the sand. And so it's like, it's like the climax. Where are you building your house? Are you building it on the rock or are you building it on the sand? And Paul here in Romans 8 is using a similar idea, a binary idea. There are two options. You are either building your life in a fleshly way or you are building your life in the spirit. Which is it? Well, uh, that, that's kind of the confrontation. That's kind of the, the, the invitation to consider the reality of the world, the conditions uh, of, of our hearts in the flesh or in the spirit. But then he offers an invitation. As you move into verse 9, uh, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So now we find out that while there are two options, you're actually invited to change your location. So if you are building your life in the Spirit, if you are setting your mind in the Spirit, if you are living according to, I'm sorry, if you are living according to the flesh, now we find out that there, Paul, Paul's actually saying it can change. You, you can actually live according to the Spirit. And that should get your attention. Because maybe you thought these were categories that were already fixed. Maybe you thought these were categories where it's like, well, I guess I'm in the flesh category. Or I guess I'm in the spirit category. But Paul here is actually suggesting that it can change. That you can change your locations. That you can actually adjust or, or, or alter where you have your life oriented. And so what we're invited to do here is to see our need to see our need for what it is and to receive the Spirit and to receive the Spirit by faith. Left to ourselves, our lives are not right. Here's the stark reality. We've been referring to this over these first few weeks. Left to ourselves, we are all in the flesh. Left to ourselves, none of us are building our lives in the right place. Remember verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation. And if you were here last Sunday, we said there's, there's a bunch of scandals in that phrase. The first scandal is that you were, you were condemned. 
that the Bible actually says that we are all condemned, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then the greater scandal is you can actually be forgiven of that condemnation. It can actually be wiped away. It can be removed. You could actually have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so as Paul comes to verses 9 and 10, this is what he wants us to see, is that you don't have to stay in the flesh. You don't have to keep living your life like that. You don't have to keep building on the sand. You can actually change your location. You can actually alter your perspective. He says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. What does Paul mean? He means that the Spirit of God changes you fundamentally. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, a new trailer, movie trailer, was released. And, um, you know, if you love movies, COVID's been terrible for movies. They've all been put on hold or delayed or whatever. But they're starting to come back. And uh, there was a trailer that was released uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's the new Matrix uh, movie. And if you're familiar with the Matrix, uh, that's, it's a, a series of movies. This will be the fourth one, I guess, uh, in, in that series. Uh, but the first one uh, was actually released 22 years ago. And so they're, stre they're stretching it out there. Um, and the, the fourth one is, is getting ready to come. But it, it stirred all the memories, especially of the first Matrix, Got a little wonky in number two and number three, but the first Matrix, uh, the first Matrix was really, really good. And if you're familiar with that movie, uh, the main character uh, is played by uh, Keanu Reeves, and uh, his name is Neo. And Neo, at, at early on in the movie, he has uh, a, a, a little experience, and he is offered a choice. And he's offered a choice to take either a blue pill or a red pill. And the guy who presents him with this option, these binary options, you might say, uh, he presents him with these two colored pills. And he says, if you take the blue pill, it's, you're going you're to remain in your life as you know it. You're going to forget that this even happened. You're going to go back to the simplicity. Yeah, you know, there's hard things and good things and birthday parties and funerals. And there's all those things. But you're going to go back to the easy road. You're going to go back to the simple life. So if you don't want to go any further, just take the blue pill. But if you take the red pill, you are going to immediately have your eyes open to the reality of the world. And the gist of the conversation is this. If you take the red pill, nothing's ever going to be the same again. You're going to enter into a world that is going to leave you with a million questions. There's, a, there's unknowns, there's uncertainty. That world is going to be harsher. It's actually going to be more difficult in some very real ways. But it's reality. It's the real world. And you would actually be set free. And you would actually have the truth. And so, Neo decides to take the red pill. To take the pill that actually turns the lights on, that, that opens up the doors, that actually shows him what is really happening in the world. And if you're familiar with the movie, he takes that pill and all of those predictions were exactly right. He enters a world of unknowns, of things that are uncertain, of things that leave him with a million more questions. He enters a world where it's harsher, 
where it's more difficult. One of the things that I so appreciate is after he takes the pill, the real world, their, their clothes are, are tattered and dirty. And it, 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 like, it, it's hard. But he's awake. It's complicated. But he's got the truth. He's he's made new. And in so many ways, and maybe you've heard this before, but when that first movie came out, all kinds of Christians were like, this seems like a description of the gospel. This seems like someone who was asleep, who, who was walking through life and thought it was one thing, and then they were made new. They were made alive. They were awakened. And they saw the world for what it is. And that doesn't mean it answered every question. It certainly didn't mean that they're on easy street. But what it meant is that they had the truth. Remember the flow of Romans. Talked this through pretty much every week so far, and we'll probably keep referencing it. But if you were thinking about the first five chapters of Romans, you could make the case that what Paul is saying is everyone needs to be made right. No one can make themselves right. Only Jesus can make you right. Only faith in Jesus will make you right. And anyone can be made right. If you have heard this news, if you have heard this reality that you are not in a good condition, that your natural state is to be separated from the God of heaven, that no matter how hard you work and no matter what you do, you can't fix that. Only Jesus can fix that. Faith in Jesus will fix that. If you have heard that good news and you have responded by faith, the gospel changes everything. You you go from being dead in the only way that matters, what Paul refers to as being in the flesh, to actually being alive in the only way that matters. What Paul refers to here as life in the spirit. One of my favorite illustrations, and if repetition wasn't a problem, I would probably use it every single month. Um, but but th- this, is, this is how it goes. You know, what, what is the difference between a rock and a plant? A, a plant has a greater sense of reality. Uh, a, a rock cannot sense hot and cold. It can't sense wet and dry, but a plant can. Now, now what's the difference between a plant and an animal? An animal has a greater sense of reality. Uh, an animal, a plant cannot sense danger, like your grass has never run out of the way of your mower, uh, but an animal can. Hopefully your dog does run away from your mower. So like a, an animal can sense danger. So what's the difference between an animal and a human? A human has a greater sense of, of reality. We would never hold an animal culpable for killing and eating an animal, but we would hold a human responsible for killing and eating a human. But the million-dollar question is, what is the difference between a human and a born-again human? A born-again human has a greater sense of reality. Their eyes have been opened. There's this recognition that life is not what they thought it was, that there's more going on, that the story is bigger and more complex and richer than they ever would have guessed. So in the end... There are two options in regard to your relationship with the God of heaven. What Paul would say is dead in the flesh or alive in the spirit. But if you have been made alive by the spirit, then that new life turns the lights on. 
It shows you the world for what it really is. But what does that actually mean? What, what, what does it mean to have the lights turned on? What does it mean to see the world for what it really is? That's so our third point is the result. So first, our condition. Paul is putting us in this binary situation where it's either you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. Then there's an invitation to actually realize that we were all in the flesh, but you can be in the spirit. You, you, can, be, you can be made new in the spirit. The Spirit of God will, will, will bring your heart to life. Well, if that happens, what's the result? Well, the result is that we see with new eyes. If you're a Christian, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's what Paul says here in these final verses. But if Christ is in you, although the body, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He repeats this idea of dwelling in you multiple times. And so if you've been made alive in the spirit, then guess what? The spirit of God actually dwells in you. I said this in the first week, but there are 30 times in the book of Romans that the Holy Spirit is referenced. 20 of those 30 times are in Romans chapter 8. This perspective of how the gospel brings us all the way home is rooted so deeply in the work of the Spirit. And if you were looking at these six verses that we're looking at today, I, I, I love this. Just, just listen, listen to these. Uh, these are, these are uh, all the ways that the Spirit is referred to in these verses. Listen to this. The Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ in you, Spirit of him who raised Jesus. Those are synonyms. Th th those are all synonyms. Those are all referring to the work of the Holy Spirit or to the person of the Holy Spirit. Here they are again. The Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ in you, Spirit of him who raised Jesus. They are all refer referring to the Spirit of God that dwells in the life of a Christian. And do you see what, what, what Paul is doing? He is associating the work of the Trinity. What one scholar said, that you could say this, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity is so one that when one comes, they all come. That when one comes into your life, they all come flooding into your life. So again, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, Christ in you, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus. That the, the Trinity is, is at play in the work of the Spirit. That the God of heaven dwells in you through the Holy Spirit and makes you alive. New life, then, brings new and better lenses. You have the Trinity, in the, the presence of the Trinity in your soul. And it brings this new life and it brings these new lenses. You see, the gospel is content. The gospel is the message about the rescue that is offered in Jesus. But it's not just content. It's like a set of glasses that when you put them on, it changes the way that you see the world. Paul uses the word, word mind multiple times in these verses. And he actually says to set your mind. So in other words, 
a mindset. Or you could say a worldview, a way of seeing the world. And there are so many implications for the Spirit of God bringing your heart to life and giving you a new view of the world. What you think is wrong with the world changes. What do you think is fundamentally wrong with the world? Well, the gospel has something to say about that, and it changes your perspective. When you have those glasses on, you begin seeing things differently. And there are so many implications. The idea of giving your life to loving God and loving people, that, that begins to make sense. The idea that faith without works is dead, like, that begins to make sense. You put those glasses on and you start to see the world in full color. I want to point to, to two aspects of evidence, I think, that new life brings. One aspect of evidence is that you see God over self. You see God over yourself. It's evidence of your mind being set on the Spirit. Now, I don't mean thinking less of yourself. You know, C.S. Lewis, when he talks about humility, he says humility isn't thinking less of yourself. He says humility is thinking of yourself less. It's this recognition that it's not all about me. It's this ability to actually see God for great and grand, to recognize that he is the ultimate one. It's not that self is unimportant, but you realize what yourself was designed for. In a sense, you've been dethroned. You're not the king anymore, but you do it voluntarily. It doesn't make any sense anymore for you to be king. Not, not when you see God for who he is. Not when you see the story for what it is. You voluntarily dethrone yourself. You voluntarily put Christ on the throne of your heart because it makes all the sense in the world with these new lenses to see Jesus as the director, as the Lord, as the master of your life. You know, one of the things that's been, been an ongoing journey in my life is to recognize that you don't want me in charge. Like, I don't want me in charge. Look at my resume. Look at my storyline. There's all kinds of mistakes along the way. Wouldn't I want a, a perfect master? Wouldn't I want a Lord who I can trust? So God over self, a second evidence that we'll point to today, is seeing God as true and beautiful and good. Now, depending on your story, one of those might be easier than the other two. Or one of those might be a lot harder than the other two. If you grew up in a circle like I grew up in, the idea of God is true, like that doesn't, that does, that's not hard. That's not hard. I, I was taught that when I was young, and I don't remember a day of my life where I did not believe that was true. So that, that one's a pretty easy one for me to see God as true. But my, my upbringing didn't involve a whole lot of the arts. And so God is beautiful. That's been a little bit more of a journey. And then as I live on the earth, longer, and I see the trauma and the hardship, and I see the trials that my life has walked through and that many of your lives have walked through, the idea of God as good can be complicated and hard. But the invitation of the gospel, as we put those lenses on, is that we go from seeing God as a problem to seeing God as the only real solution. Do you know what I mean? 
Not, not, not that there aren't things that confuse us, not that there aren't things that leave us scratching our heads, but we actually begin to believe things like this, that tragedies can be redeemed, that beauty can come from ashes, as the Bible says. We believe that our plans aren't the only or the best options. We actually realize that death has lost its sting. You know, Paul says that. Oh, death, where is your sting? And how, how do you get to the place to where you can say, death, where is your sting? Well, the gospel tells us that the story is bigger. And because the gospel is true, death doesn't have the last word. You see, there's many more examples we could give, but your perspective is dramatically changed. Paul had this happen in his life. Paul was an oppressor of the church, and he became the greatest promoter of the church. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is in John chapter 3, when Jesus interacts with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a, is a religious leader. He is the most moral of the moral. He is the best of the best. And he comes to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, you're saying all this stuff and I don't understand what you're saying. I'm confused, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You've got to be born again. All of your good deeds. You see, Nicodemus was building his life and he was building quite the house. It was pretty impressive. All the people that walked by Nicodemus's, Nicodemus's figurative house were in awe of Nicodemus. And Jesus says, yeah, but you built it on the sand. You built it in the wrong place. We can't just, it, it, it's a total rebuild. You've got to build it on the rock. You've got to be born again. So Paul had this happen. Nicodemus had this happen. I, I've had this happen. I had this happen a lot later in my journey than you might expect, just about 11 years ago. Have you had it happen? Have you had this, this realization that the world is, is, is rightly understood from the perspective of God and the gospel? That the story of the world, the true understanding of the world that we live in, is understood rightly in light of the gospel? Now, I'm not saying that we live on easy street. Look, Paul says, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit will give life. He's like, your body is dead because of sin. If you become a Christian, guess what? You still get cancer. You, you still can go bankrupt. We still die. Our, our bodies are broken. This world is broken. And because of sin in the world, because of the effects of sin in the world, we deal with that stuff all the time. And yet... The Spirit makes us alive in the only way that matters. Look again at the end of verse 10. He says, The Spirit is life because of righteousness. You see, he's tying this back into the overarching argument of Romans. Rightness. You've got to be right. You've got to be right with the God of heaven. And this is saying that the Spirit of life is life because of rightness. Because the Spirit makes you right with the God of heaven, which is what you were designed for. It's how you have abundant life on this earth and eternal life after. Everyone needs rightness. And it's offered through faith in Christ. Paul's language in, in chapter 8, uh, many scholars point to this, but he appears to be referring to a passage in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37. And if you're familiar with Ezekiel 37, uh, Ezekiel was a prophet of the Lord. 
and uh, he has a, a vision and experience with, with God. And God takes him to a valley. And Ezekiel ends up in this valley. And this valley is packed full of dry bones, skeletons everywhere. I mean, you know, it's, Halloween is on a Sunday this year. So maybe I should have waited a, a couple weeks for this. But, um, but there, there's, there's bones, bones everywhere. And God begins to interact with, with Ezekiel. And he basically says to Ezekiel, I want you to preach the word to them. I want you to preach my word to them. Speak my word to them. And Ezekiel does that. And God says, I'm going I'm to breathe my breath of life into them. And you know what happens? All of these dead bones, they, like, they come to life. They go from being dead, dry bones to being living people. They, they, they are brought to life. And it's this incredible picture of the power of the word of God to bring life to people. For, for this, this news of a rescue to actually bring spiritual life. Look, if you're sitting here saying it seems impossible, you're right. It does seem impossible. But guess what? It's not. It's not impossible. It is ridiculous. Think about it. It is ridiculous that dead bones would come to life. It is ridiculous to think that the God of heaven dwells in you. Those things are ridiculous. And yet they're true. They're actually, it's a miracle. Do you know that? That if you are a Christian, it's a miracle? It's a miracle that any of us are Christians. But if that has happened to you, your life will be forever different. The Spirit of God empowers and invites you to live a life full of faith and action, a life that is willing to walk in, in obedience with Him. Have you turned to Christ in faith? He will come flooding into your life through His Spirit, and He'll bring His resurrection power. And look, just like the Matrix, it might be scary. It might feel unknown. There's a reason why the word faith is in the mix. We don't have every T crossed and every I dotted, but we have the most important T crossed and the most important I dotted. We're invited through the Spirit to see the world for what it really is. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text and we thank you for Paul's starkness to confront us with the two options of life according to the flesh or life according to the Spirit. God, we thank you even more for the good news that our condition can change, that we can actually have our lives reoriented, refocused, moved from building on the sand to building on the rock, from oriented to the flesh to oriented to the Spirit. And we thank you that it's a free gift it's a gift that comes by faith alone, by being made right with you. We know we can't do that ourselves, but we thank you that Christ and his glorious work on the cross, his conquering of death in the grave, God, because of that, we can be brought to you. We can be made right. We thank you for this good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.